0: This is Diane Horn, your host on the sustainability segment of Mind Over Matters on KEXP Seattle 90.3 FM by mobile app and on the web at KEXP.org. My guest today is Lisa Marginelli. Lisa is the author of Oil on the Brain, Petroleum's Long Strange Trip to Your Tank, and Deputy Editor of Sakalo Public Square and Arizona State University Magazine of Ideas. From 2006 to 2012, she was a fellow at the New America Foundation. She has written for the Atlantic, Wired, Scientific American, the New York Times, and other publications. Lisa Morganelli is here to tell us about her most recent book, Underbug, An Obsessive Tale of Termites and Technology, published in 2018. Welcome, Lisa. Hello. What led you to write your book, Underbug.
1: Well, I had been following around some scientists who worked at the Joint Genome Institute, and they were studying the genetics of termites' guts and how termites digest wood. And they invited me out on a termite safari in Arizona, and I went with them, and we ended up, like, running through the landscape looking for termites. And I had a really good time, and I also realized how interesting the scientists were and how interesting the termites were at the same time.
0: What is the purpose of your book?
1: It's to explore how scientists are taking another look at an insect that most of us consider a pest. So termites are, you know, a famous pest. They eat like $40 billion worth of property a year. But they're looking at them to find sort of secrets for sustainability. So one thing is we want to imitate the way they eat wood so that we could make something like uh, cellulosic biofuels. But we also want to understand how it is that they organize themselves without a centralized plan or a centralized leader. And we want to replicate that both with things like robots and drones and swarming technologies, as well as with software. And I would say that the overall goal of many of the studies of termites that are going on now is to kind of both have a lot of control and also be light on the earth. So to be different than our current model of heavy industry and fossil fuels.
0: How widespread are termites in the world?
1: They basically run from 45 degrees south latitude to 45 degrees north latitude. So they're a big belt around the equator. And as it gets colder on the edges of their territory, you have fewer termites. But one of the things that's happening as the climate changes is that termites' ranges are changing a lot. And termites also move around the world A lot through human agency. So when the first dry wood-eating termites moved out of Peru and around the world with Spanish ships in the 1500s that went to Peru, and then more recently they've moved from Taiwan and the Philippines and places like that on pallets used for shipping war materials and other things, and they've moved into Louisiana and the American Southeast, so you have them moving all around the world with shipments of human things.
0: What is the evolutionary history of termites?
1: Well, they used to be cockroaches. Once upon a time, there were cockroaches, <laughs> about 150 million years ago. The cockroaches don't really rear their young. They just sort of blast an egg out of their backsides, an egg case, and walk away. And the cockroaches are basically solitary. There are some social cockroaches, but then what happened was they began to kind of evolve. If they wanted to eat wood, they needed to have microbes in their guts, and the microbes that allowed them to get nutrition from wood would leave them every time they molted their intestines because cockroaches molt their intestines. So they began to live in a group where they would share what's called wood shake. It's kind of a microbial flurry from butt to butt, and mouth to butt, they would run around sort of drinking this slurry from each other, and that kept the microbes kind of within them, and their genes and their behaviors all began to shift until they became social insects. So as I've described, they're pooling all their digestion, but they also pool all their reproduction. The queen does all the reproducing, queen and king. And they have soldiers that kind of evolved, and the soldiers have a function sort of of an immune system. They fight off invaders. And also the worker termites lost their eyes. They lost the big size of the cockroaches. They don't develop wings, only the fertile termites develop wings and eyes. But they evolved to become this very social creature that communicates through chemistry like pheromones and through clicking with each other. They seem to communicate a lot through touch, and they rear their young. So the eggs that are taken away from the queen termite are brought to sort of these little nursery areas, and they're tended by other termites, and then the young are actually raised within the nest. So it's a very different world. The world of termites is very different from that of cockroaches, but they evolved from the cockroaches about 150 million years ago.
0: Where can you find termites? What type of living quarters do they use?
1: The worst place for termites, obviously, is in your house. So anywhere there's wood, there's a possibility that there's termites in it. But around the world, termites can live in wood. There are some termites that live in soil, there are some termites that eat soil, and there are also termites that eat grass. And usually the termites are pretty specific about what they eat. There aren't too many that are generalists who eat everything. Most termites will eat dry grass or dead wood, And if you go to, like, the African savannas or kind of dry plains, you'll see lots of termites living in big mounds that can be 15 feet high. And those termites eat dried grass, and they pull it back to the mounds, and they build the mounds in those huge shapes that have a very interesting kind of architecture inside them. And you'll also find termites living in trees in South America. And in the American Southwest, you find them living in little tunnels underground.
0: Would you say more about the termite mounds and how they function?
1: The termites in South Africa and Namibia that I saw are all of the family Macrotermes, and they have a king and a queen, and they have soldiers, and they have workers, but they also have a fungus. And so not only do they share microbes between them, but they actually cultivate a fungus In the basement of their mounds so a colony of these termites might weigh like five kilograms so maybe 10 or 11 pounds if you took all the termites together but then they work to build these giant mounds and the mounds might be about 13 to 15 feet high they can be less and sometimes they're a little more and they're just a giant pile of dirt but inside they have a very distinctive architecture in the top of them they have these kind of up and down air spaces and then they have kind of spongy air spaces out towards the edges of the dirt and then the dirt itself is quite hard on the outside so you have a mound and then you have a king and a queen in it and then you have millions of little worker termites and some soldier termites and then you have this giant fungus and the question is you know what on earth is going on here <laughs> The whole mound with its termites in it can eat about as much grass in a year as a 1,000-pound cow, which is really huge. So that's the fungus plus the termites are eating all this grass. But it's dead grass. It's not the fresh grass that the cow would be eating. So one of the theories about termites is that they form a superorganism. So by working together, they kind of create like a whole body. So the termites together have the king and the queen are like the ovaries they're kind of the reproductive organs. The fungus would be kind of like the stomach. And then so what is the mound doing? Well, one of the theories is is that the mound is actually working like a lung. It sticks up into the winds that are going across the plains, and it captures that passing wind energy, and sometimes it'll puff air out, and sometimes it sort of puffs air in. And sometimes it actually works like a lung, because sometimes it's a big puff, and sometimes it's just little sort of wheezing air movements. And that's one of the theories. Another possibility is that the foraging tunnels kind of work like a mouse and that the soldiers then function a little bit as an immune
0: system. I'm Diane Horn, and my guest is Lisa Morganelli, author of the book Underbug, An Obsessive Tale of Termites and Technology. And you are tuned to the sustainability segment of Mind Over Matters on listener-powered KEXP. 90.3 of them by mobile app and on the web at kexp.org. Why are scientists studying how termites build mounds? What lessons are being learned and how might this help humans?
1: I think the first thing that people have wanted to figure out is how the termites organize themselves to build the mounds. What are the rules that the termites are following? Because we know that the termites don't have blueprints. So one of the scientist who's been studying the mounds is named Jeffrey Scott Turner, and he's been studying them to see if he can figure out what the function of the mound is and then kind of reverse engineer how it is that they build it. So if the mound functions as a lung, maybe it's air that changes how the termites behave that makes them put down a ball of dirt in one place instead of another. And he made a lot of interesting discoveries. One of the things that termites are doing also is that they're moving lots of water because these are very dry landscapes, but they get drenched with water at certain times of the year, and the termites then shift the water around from the bottom of the mound to the top of the mound. And that also helps them be more damp during the very dry periods of time. So they're moving water, they're moving air. How are they engineering these things? And then he started working with some people who study robots and who build robots at Harvard's Wies Institute. And the lab is run by a woman named Radhika Nagpal there. And they came in and started trying to observe how the termites actually place dirt balls down and pick them up. And early on, they built like very special sort of plexiglass sets for the termites to move around in where they could carefully observe them and use things like laser scanners to see where they were putting down dirt balls. But as time went on, they realized that they needed a better sense of who each termite was, because the termites, if you're tracking ants or bees, you can put a little paint on the back of your bug. But with termites, the termites are always grooming each other, so you can't put any paint on the back of the bug. So they would not know what each termite individually was doing. Once they figured out how to build a tracking system for that, they were actually able to see that the termites have sort of individual personalities. Some of them are hard workers who lead other termites to do things, and some of them, they're just flackers. They're just running around, and we still don't actually know what they're doing. But the reason that they wanted to crack what termites are doing, the reason the roboticists wanted to crack what termites are doing is that there's a lot of things that termites do that we would like to do. For example, we would like to be able to send robots into disaster areas and have them build maybe a barrier. For example, if you think about the Fukushima nuclear plant disaster, if you could send robots in that could build a barrier based on the site at hand rather than on a blueprint, if they could go in there and build a barrier, then we could wall off the area that's radioactive from the other areas. Instead, we have to send humans in or we have to actually have a blueprint and then send robots in that do very specific tasks. But if they could all work together, you could do something quite different. So one of the things is they want to figure out how to build in unfamiliar areas. Another thing they wanted to do was to figure out how to build autonomously, how to have robots that don't have a master plan build based on cues on the ground and cues from each other. And so... They looked at termites, and they drew some inspiration from what termites were doing. And then they have applied that to some very interesting robots that they've built. I think the other thing, there are two other aspects. The military obviously wants to use robots or drones that swarm like termites or like other swarming insects like these. That's a very attractive concept because you could understand what was going on in a landscape without having to send humans in there, and without necessarily having human preconceptions about what was happening in the landscape. And then finally, the roboticists wanted to be able to design software. Well, let me just back up. So if I'm an artivark and I come along and I knock my way into a termite mound, the termites will very quickly know that this artivark has broken in and has popped a a hole in their mound, and they'll come running towards that hole to fix the hole, they'll all have a little ball of dirt in their mouth and they'll come running towards it and they'll quickly wall off the area that's been broken through. So if you can understand that, then we can start to build software systems that are self-healing and think about systems that analyze themselves and then heal themselves without kind of a centralized controller. So those are some of the things that we're looking at.
0: What contribution do termites make to creating and maintaining healthy ecosystems?
1: Well, this was another thing that came out of the very interesting research. There was another group of several other groups of researchers that I followed who were doing work on both how to restore ecosystems that have been really traumatized by mining or by overgrazing to the point where they've become almost infertile. And then I also found an ecologist and a mathematician from Princeton, Robert Pringle and Corina Tarnita, who were studying how termites make landscapes more fertile. So to start with, when landscapes have really been devastated in areas where there are termites, it's possible to use termites to restore them. In parts of West Africa, lands have been really overgrazed so that they no longer are very fertile. The dirt becomes very hard. It's hard to get anything to grow there. And one of the things that farmers have done is that they make little holes and they put some wood and grass and other things and sprinkle some termites in there. And gradually the termites sort of start to restore the land. They dig back into the land and they make it easier for water to get in. They mix their own feces into the dirt and that starts to make it more fertile. So that was one project that was done over many hectares in West Africa. And then there was another project in Australia, and a bauxite mine. Bauxite is the stuff that's mined for aluminum. It's really devastating when they come in and do it. They basically, they strip off the topsoil, they dig out about two meters worth of bauxite kind of pebbles, and then they drop the topsoil back on the top about two meters lower. So it's very hard to get something to grow there again. But what happened was there was a special project at a mine in northwestern Australia, and basically they coaxed different levels of termites to come in. Over the course of about 26 years, 13 different kinds of termites came through. First came in a group that just dealt with grasses, and then once there were bushes, another group came in that dealt with bushes. And gradually there were more and more kinds of termites, and there were trees, and there's a whole forest that has grown back in that area it has trees, it has bushes, and it has grasses. And it looks sort of like the original forest. It's not the same. But for restoring this kind of devastated landscape, it's actually a very impressive thing. So I wanted to know how that happened, and that's when I started talking to Robert Pringle and Corina Tarnita. Robert Pringle had noticed when he was studying elephants in Africa that they seem to be hanging out specifically on these kind of bumps in the landscape in almost a pattern, where there was, if you think of the landscape and imagine it covered with polka dots, and in the center of each polka dot, there's some grasses and trees that are extra delicious. It's extra green there, and it's kind of less green as you get further away from the polka dot. And then once you get to the next polka dot, that polka dot is really green. Well, the elephants were not unexpectedly hanging out on these green polka dots. It turned out that those were actually also very small termite mounds. And that the termite mounds were kind of making little fertility hotspots all over the landscape. He also discovered that there were lots of geckos there and there were lots of spiders and, you know, all the way on up to the giraffe. Somehow the termites were involved in patterning the landscape. So he started working with this mathematical biologist, Corina Tarnita, who started studying how the termites influence the landscape and interact with the grasses. And she found, along with Each of them worked with really large teams of other scientists who were doing other work. But they found that the termites actually sort of influenced this pattern all across the landscape, and then when they started looking even further afield, they found that they could potentially be influencing really large pieces of land all around the world. And what I think was really interesting was that the termites seem to make land more resistant to drought. So normally, if land doesn't have termites in it, and it goes through a few years of drought, you can actually get to a point where the land stops being productive and gets more towards this state of being more of like a desert. But if you have termites there, you can go through many more years of drought and with much less rain, and the landscape will still recover and not be a desert. Because the termites are changing the way the water penetrates the ground. Because of their feces, they're leaving more nutrients in the ground, in particular nitrogen, the way that they seem to create kind of an anchor spot for the green grasses and the trees also seems to encourage other green grasses and trees. And in general, they seem to have these sort of feedback effects on the land that, you know, create fertility over large areas. So that's all very exciting. Another thing that happened was that a team of scientists in Australia decided to see if termites could help them grow wheat, which sounds you know, completely ridiculous, like how would termites help with a crop, because we always think of them as being a pest. And they found that when they allowed termites to remain in dry wheat fields, these are these dry Australian wheat fields, and didn't put nitrogen fertilizer on, they actually were able to increase their wheat yields by about 35%, which is quite a lot. And it suggests that termites are doing things that we don't really know anything about and that we don't pay any attention to and that some of our farming practices might be a kind of out of whack with what we could do if we were paying more attention to the termites.
0: You are tuned to the sustainability segment of Mind Over Matters on KEXP Seattle 90.3 FM by mobile app and on the web at KEXP.org. I'm Diane Horn, and my guest is Lisa Morganelli, author of the book Underbug, an obsessive tale of termites and technology. Would you also say a few words about the efforts of scientists to develop biofuels using processes that termites use to digest wood?
1: This was one of the most interesting aspects of spending 10 years following scientists who were following termites. You know, I started talking to scientists about developing biofuels based on termites back in 2007. And, you know, the book just came out this year in 2018. So I had this long period of time to watch the scientists. In the early days, the scientists were taking the termites' gut microbes, the parts of the termite that's able to digest wood, and they were throwing them into gene sequencers and getting a sense of all these different genes that could work to digest wood. And I think in the early days... They thought, okay, we're going to find a couple of, like, really killer genes in here, and then we're going to put that in something like E. coli or some simple, like, laboratory organism and get them to make those enzymes, and then we're going to be able to make biofuels like a termite. And they started to do that, and they actually worked with some big commercial biofuel companies who were trying to do the same thing. But it turned out that what the termite's doing is much more complex than that. And termites don't just have one or two enzymes or even one hundred or two hundred enzymes that dissolve wood. They have these giant teams of enzymes and the microbes all live in kind of distinct neighborhoods in the termite gut. And so they're all each one is eating each other's garbage, basically. (laughs) It's very, very complex in there. So they essentially said, Okay, well termites are a model. That this can be done because a termite can eat like a piece of paper a piece of just copy paper and get uh, like a liter of hydrogen now that's not the same as the liter that you put in your car but they do this job of eating wood and cellulose and paper and grass very very efficiently in a way that we cannot be that efficient so they remain kind of a goal and we continue to study what the termites are doing but at the same time the attempts at making biofuels have sort of gone off into much more abstracted systems. So now they work with E. coli. They work with very specific genes and enzymes that they try to fine-tune. They've tried to now get into the E. coli and kind of psych it out so that it will produce more of certain chemicals. So at the end of all this time, they have actually come up with two commercial biofuels limonene and pinene. One smells like lemon and one a little bit like pine, apparently. And those are also used for all sorts of industrial solvent, other things than fuel. They're pretty expensive, so there's something that the military buys and uses for missile fuel. And also the scientists at the Joint Bioenergy Institute are also apparently working on something else that could potentially be a substitute for gasoline. It's still not the same price as gasoline, but we pay very little for gasoline considering its climate damage, so it's possible that you know it will become more viable. It's kind of extraordinary that they're even able to talk about it at all given how hard it is to digest wood. So they've come a long way, but they're not actually at the goal that they set 10 years ago of being competitive with gasoline.
0: What do you hope your book will accomplish?
1: Well, I had spent all this time thinking about oil. You know, I'd, I'd been working on oil since maybe 2001. So I've spent years and years thinking about oil, and once I started seeing what we were doing with termites, I realized that I was kind of seeing like a little guide to the future. In the termite, you can understand how synthetic biology is going to change us. On the one hand, we'll get off of oil, and that'll be great. And on the other hand, it'll raise all sorts of interesting ethical questions that we haven't really thought about. And the same thing goes for designing swarming robots, which on the one hand will allow us to control things and do things. Instead of building giant pipelines, we'll be able to move things around the world in a much lighter kind of way, much lighter on the earth. But that will also raise all sorts of ethical questions. And then the termites themselves and their impact on the environment is so extraordinary and so powerful, and it seems to influence so much of the world around us that it's kind of amazing that we only think of the termites as pests. So I guess I wanted to raise a bunch of ethical questions about the kinds of science that we're starting to do and the world that we're hoping to design as a way of getting away from oil and heavy industry. And at the same time, I also really liked the scientists. I thought they were really interesting. And I thought that this science needed to come out of the labs and be something that the rest of us could talk about because we are starting to get to the point where we, as citizens, need to start thinking ethically about what we're doing because there are better ways to do things and there are worse ways to do things. And we need to think in a more complex way about those things.
0: Well, what's the message you'd like to leave our listeners with?
1: Well, I think the deeper I got into termites, the more fantastic they were. You know, one of the things about termites is that they seem to think as a group. I don't mean that they're conscious as a group, but somehow as a group, they think. And the idea that a group has some sort of cognition, a group of little, dumb, tiny insects that we pay no attention to, are somehow having some kind of cognition in the dirt all around us really suggests that the world is far more complex than our human cognition systems can possibly grasp. And so, basically, I had a lot of fun following termites, and I came upon a lot of ideas that were extraordinary and shocking and interesting and provocative, and I just thought that following termites was great. It just suggests that the world is so much more complex than we can comprehend.
0: Well thanks so much for being here, Lisa.
1: Oh, you're very welcome.
0: You are just listening to Lisa Morganelli, author of the book Underbug, an obsessive tale of termites and technology, published in twenty eighteen by Scientific American Books in Farrar, Straus and Giroux. For more information, check on the web at LisaMarganelli.com. That's L-I-S-A-M-A-R-G-O-N-E-L-L-I dot C O M. Sustainability segment interviews are available as podcasts along with KEXP's music podcasts. Go to the podcast section of KEXP's website at kexp.org. I'm Diane Horn. Thanks for listening on KEXP 90.3 FM by mobile app and at kexp.org.